So the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the theme for LWML Sunday is that God is for us and God is with us. And I think maybe the, the idea that God is with us is a little more intuitive. Um, that's something that we talk about a lot. Um, it's, it's something at least I like to talk about because it's kind of this revolutionary idea that <clears throat> in a life of faith following Jesus, uh, it is not about building a ladder or ascending some sort of divine staircase to God. The point is actually that God comes down to us. And that Jesus makes, or when we say that Jesus makes his home in our hearts or something like that, it's not a cute sort of Sunday school kind of thing. It's not really like a feeling or something like that, or it's not just a feeling, but rather it's a very ancient, very Hebrew way of talking about sacred space. God dwelled in the temple, and now God dwells within us, his people which means you are sacred space. You are, when, when the Apostle Paul says, you are temples, your bodies are temples of the living God, he's not being cute. He's actually being very, very profound. So, what about, however, the idea of God being for us? I mean, on the one hand, that seems to make sense until you think about it a little more. Okay, God is for me. And why did I have a cold all last week? Uh, or to make things maybe a, a little more poignant and a little more serious, um, Friday, last Friday, we celebrated my wife's birthday. She's 29. Um, and uh, it turns out uh, there's another anniversary that we kind of observe on that day. Uh, I was also diagnosed with leukemia on my wife's birthday. I was actually escorted out of my classes that morning. It was kind of a nightmare. Um, so if you think you have ruined somebody's birthday, haha, <laughs> I got you beat there. Maybe. Um, and if you beat that, then yikes. Uh, at some point after, the timelines are a little fuzzy uh, in my head. There was some kind of lottery Powerball sort of thing, and the the uh, total winnings were, if I'm remembering correctly, about three hundred million dollars. And by about that point, we were starting to get a sense of just how expensive it was going to be um, to treat my condition. Um, like bankruptcy kinds of things were not off the table. And so we were thinking, well, hey, Powerball is $300 million. Imagine the headlines, cancer patient, seminary student, you know, that's a good story. You know, God is with us, right? Or God is, excuse me, God is for us. So we bought a couple of tickets. We didn't win, obviously. Um, so is God for us? Now, Obviously, I'm being a little facetious, um, but maybe not that much, because when we talk about God being for us, we tend to think about God being for our benefit more than anything else. 
And one of the temptations of a life of faith is to use that faith as sort of like wish fulfillment. Like, this is how I imagine God, and therefore this is how I imagine God wants my life, which, by the way, is enormously comfortable. But it doesn't really work like that. So when the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? That raises a question, what does he mean by that? Now, anytime you get into the book of Romans, you almost have to take a step back and look at the argument that he's been building up to that point. Romans is an endlessly complicated letter. It is St. Paul's magnum opus, some of the brightest theological minds the history has ever seen have specialized in the book of Romans and will readily admit that they still don't have it figured out. But it stacks. He's, he's building to something, and then when he gets there, he kind of continues on building. So we have to ask ourselves, where has Paul been so far in this letter? So he's writing to a group of Christians in the city of Rome. And he's writing... Um, Basically, with a crisis, or he's writing to address a crisis. Um, we won't get into the whole story if you like to learn these kinds of things. Pastor's Bible study uh, that I teach between the two services in the parish hall, we go into depth with these things. Uh, but to make a very long story short, uh, there was a time when all of the Jewish people in Rome were actually kicked out by the Roman emperor. And that includes Jewish followers of Jesus which meant all the Gentile followers, not raised Jewish or anything like that, followers of Jesus, they stayed. And then after like a decade or so, the timeline's a little tricky, um, the Jewish followers of Jesus were allowed to return. Actually, all Jewish people were allowed to return. And so you had what we might call a Christian community of Gentile, non-Jewish followers of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, now having to like reintegrate with the Jewish followers of Jesus. And that created, it appears, a lot of friction. Because if you are Jewish, you have been raised in the narrative of God. You are a, a, a son of Israel or daughter of Israel. You have been raised to know God's story and you know God's law. And so you realistically will have a much deeper connection to what it means to be Messiah. And you will understand Jesus in kind of a different way from, say, a Gentile who three years ago was sacrificing to Zeus and doing all kinds of things that I'm not allowed to say in, in a sermon. And so you will understand Jesus kind of in a different way. So how do you get these groups back together? That's why Paul writes the book of Romans. And he spends about seven chapters, the first seven chapters, explaining why neither group is better than the other. 
So when he says, and it's a very famous verse in Romans, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what he really means is both. Both Jewish believer, Gentile believer. Both have kind of messed up. And the reason why Romans, or one of the reasons why Romans is so well-beloved is that in order to make his argument, Paul dives deep into the human condition. And it speaks very, very poignantly about who we are. Paul says, okay, great. Um, You Jewish believers, you have the law. You've had it since you were born. That's great. That is a good thing. God's law is good. And if everybody followed God's law, life would be a whole lot easier. Do you keep it? Can you honestly say that you have followed it well? Earlier this week, teaching um, um, catechism for the 7th and 8th grade, we've been going through the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And some of the commandments are pretty, like, abstract. You know, like, like when you talk about, uh, you know, you don't cover, covet your neighbor's house or something like that, um, it's, hard to, it's hard to really make that real to a 7th or 8th grader. Um, but when we got to the commandment about bearing false testimony, basically lying, I asked, question, has anybody here told a lie this week? And it was amazing. Immediately, everybody's eyes just kind of like, hmm. Um, I mean, my eyes were too. It's like, "Eh, don't look at me. I'm guilty. And so Paul first sets up great, like this idea that, that fantastic, you you have the law, but you haven't been able to keep it. Like, it's, it's actually been this thing that shows you your need. Like, when you have a list of rules, then you start to realize the way you don't measure up. Uh, and, and, and he, he kind of gets at the Gentiles in a slightly different way. He says, okay, yeah, you didn't have the law. You, don't, you didn't know God's requirements listed in a very specific way. But, I mean, wasn't God's law written on your heart? Wasn't there kind of something that showed you that something was wrong? Or, or maybe to put it a different way, if you judged yourself by your own standards, whatever those standards may be, will you have lived up to them? No. Even if your standard is, I will never judge myself, do you find that you judge yourself? Absolutely. And so Paul leads up, he spends, it's beautiful, but it's also just really complicated, uh, seven chapters of essentially saying, whether it's God's standards or your own, something has gone wrong. deep within us. Paul himself says, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, 
I do. That hits home. That's really, really tough. And so right as Paul makes his way into chapter 8, he says, but. That's not where the story ends. And God sends his son. And his son uh, is bridges that gap. Like, this is why Jesus goes to his death. That, that inability, or really the, the reason behind our inability to live up to any standard, actually dies with Jesus. And so when he gets to chapter 8, he opens with a flourish and says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. That's a bold statement. And elsewhere, Paul will write, I don't judge myself. God judges me. Now, that can be scary. Like, I remember, um, this was in a mall, like, however many years ago, and, and there was a, they were selling these t-shirts in one of those kiosks, and it said, only God can judge me. I was like, what an odd thing to put, a, to put on a t-shirt. Um, like, on the one hand, if you wear something like that, I'm guessing you lack self-awareness. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, that's true. That should make you a little nervous, at least. But for those who are in Jesus, there is no condemnation. But then he continues, because this isn't just about me feeling better. And in fact, Paul takes that and then he, he couches it in like cosmic imagery. Because not only uh, ha, is the condemnation of God taken off of your back because of Jesus, but actually creation itself is yearning, as he says, for the revealing of the children of God. That the cosmic narrative, the story of all creation, hinges on this moment when Jesus goes to his grave for you and me and everybody else, and then God defeats death in Jesus by raising him from the dead. And when that happens, something else is triggered as well. And all of creation, in this really hard-to-describe hard way, waits. It waits for the moment when God finishes what he starts in Jesus. When at last, this, this reality that there is no condemnation in Jesus, that he has bought you with the blood of Jesus, that you, he has dragged you through the death of Jesus, into this new life, new creation, when that is fulfilled and you stand there as you were truly meant to be, as you truly could be, and 
as an ambassador of the divine presence to all of creation and creation itself (sighs) breathes a sigh of relief. Then Paul says, if God is for you, who can be against you? God being for us is not about wish fulfillment. It's not about winning the lottery or having nice things or even having an easy life. It's not really about just doing the right things or, or, or anything like that. It's so much more. God being for you is all about the story that God is telling in and through your life. That whatever either big or small day-to-day things that you run into, things that drag you down or encourage you or bring you up or, or seem to destroy you, like that's all part of a story that God is telling in Jesus, through Jesus, about who you really are. That you are ambassadors of new creation. That the service, the love, and the justice that you do towards your fellow human beings matters and it is part of this story that your identity isn't caught up in what you do or where you are or how much you make or your family or your accomplishments or anything like that but it's all about this story that God has told in your life and that story begins With Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 8. And it goes through to the end of chapter 8. When Paul says, therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So God is for you. He has called you into a story of redemption. A story of new life. Whatever else may come your way. Amen. I invite you to rise as you are able.